Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Rami Umptum Ruminations. My name is Scott. I'm the host. Today I have a continuation of last week's discussion with a very special guest. And the episode is called Welfare and Self-Reliance Abroad Part 2. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Nolan. We brought him on last week, and we talked uh, a bit about his background with the church. Nolan worked as a full-time employee for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints within the Welfare and Self-Reliance Department outside of the United States. We talked about the self-reliance and welfare program from a from a wide perspective of what their function was across the globe. We talked a little bit about what that position entailed. And then we covered some of his top 10 things that he noticed about working for the church in that first year. This was a list that he had written as an active believing member, noticing some of the aspects of working for the organization. Then we, we also covered a bit about the Perpetual Education Fund. If you missed the episode, go back, listen to it. It was a fascinating discussion, eye-opening on the way, way the churches run outside of the United States. With great pleasure, I have Nolan back on the show. Welcome back to Rami Empton Ruminations, Nolan. Thank you, Scott. It's uh, nice to be back. I'm grateful that you've given me the opportunity to discuss this stuff with you. It is so fascinating, and I am excited to, to cover the subject of the RM playbook, as you've described it. I think this is going to be something that many of our <laughs> listeners are not familiar with. Was there anything from the previous episode or from our previous discussion that that you might want to add or that you might want to maybe clarify something that that maybe we didn't cover before we change subjects and, and switch gears here? Not that I can think of other than may, maybe as maybe today's discussion that may it may reflect back on some other things as well. But yeah. As I have you here, I would love to, to pick your brain on, on anything that comes to mind from your time working for the church. And then I do, I do want to end it off. I've got a couple of questions, and you don't have to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nolan is a pseudonym. That is not his name. He's, he wants to maintain some anonymity. You want me to launch into this? Yeah, let's, let's dig right in. Yeah, what, so what is this RM playbook? Near the end of my time, there was a desire to help missionaries, local missionaries, meaning they're, they're either coming back to the country or they're already serving in country. Prepare for the next uh, phase of their life. Okay, This is a very interesting topic, actually, uh, I think, because it, it shows some stark cultural differences. Okay. And I, something I noticed a long time ago, uh, and, and it'd be interesting to get other people's perspective from a different parts of the world than, than, than mine. But, uh, and again, I don't want to, I don't really want to say where, but the, the, you know, the American, uh, 18, 19 year old American men in the church grew up in a very specific kind of environment. Their mentality and outlook is very different from, uh, from, say, somebody growing up in Ghana 
or uh, growing up in Guatemala or uh, Chile or so forth. I mean, their 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 life experience, their outlook. Oftentimes, most of the time, their family support structure is different than than these. You know, uh, John Smith from Sandy, Utah. You know, grew up in his fifth generation, all that. And so um, the, at the end of their mission, their life looks can look very much, very different from uh, sort of the expectation or what the hope is that the church has on them about, you know, OK, you go go get your degree and go get married and have children and get married, you know, and serve in the church the rest of your life. So um, I, I explain that because. uh this program that was developed was sort of an attempt to, I don't know, sort of mitigate or provide resources, provide support for uh, people like this. Um, and so over a period of six months, there was a program developed. It came to be known as the RM Playbook. And as many of us know, this is, this is sort of public knowledge now that Many missionaries finish their mission, and within a few months or years, they're sort of gone now. They it, it it doesn't have it may not have the the power that it once had in keeping uh, young men active in the church and uh, tied or or yeah participating and growing in leadership and all that. And so there was for for there was this concept about so what a concept developed and an actual very system developed and actually sort of a program developed, a computer program developed to begin interacting with the soon to be return missionaries and then post return, you know, after they'd finished actually interacting with them in a sort of a, from a role of this self-reliance manager, we're like, how can we help them become quickly more self-reliant and get on a, get on a path after their mission, a path to stability in their life. So for six months, there was lots of meetings and lots of t- sort of testing. We were, we were sweet. We, we tested this thing. We began doing it. Me, me and, a, and a colleague. You were developing this program. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, again, it was, it was sort of like, we're going to do this for, we're going to try this out, work on this for six months. And there's regular reports to the area presidency through another person. Was this an assignment you guys were given or was this a problem that you, okay. Well, it was, uh, it was an assignment we were given, but it was also, I think it came about through discussion about the challenges. Again, we, we were, we were brief, we had to brief mission presidents on what we were doing and stake presidents on what we were doing because again, this, this speaks to this ecclesiastical operational split in the church. Which was something we discussed last episode. And for a quick recap, what's the difference between the ecclesiastical and operational sides of the church? Missionaries fall under the mission president. He's their ecclesiastical leader. Okay. Missionaries don't go to the local bishop to confess. They go to the mission president. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. And then the operational side of the church? We are, we're, we're an operational person. So we were interfacing with the missionaries as an operations type person. So we had, in order to do this properly, we had to brief the mission president and the stake presidents. Cause again, they, they also fall under their stake president. When they get released, they go, they go to their stake and they get released and all that. And so we're kind of like, we're like this support person to come in. We're kind of almost like, almost like a career counselor 
to them as they're getting ready to finish their mission. So we, we began meeting with them to kind of find out what were their plans? What are they going to do? Do they have, do they have a plan? Do they need help? And in some, some cases you're dealing with somebody who's going to finish their mission. They have no home family support. Sometimes occasionally, not often, but occasionally they didn't even know where they were going to live after they finished their mission. I had a few of these myself. Okay. And so what, what that, what that told us was we needed to help them get ready for what's going to happen after at the end of their mission. So there was a system developed to of contact points where we would contact them. Again, this is almost always by telephone or on Facebook or something. Because you, you were covering a large geographical area with this program. Yes. Yes. And not only that, but I was also covering, I was also responsible for missionaries who were serving outside of the country. <laughs> to put perspective for the listener, you, Nolan, are an expatriate U.S. citizen living in a foreign country, working for the church. These people you're saying serving in a foreign country are citizens of this nation that you're living in. Yes, yes. Serving outside of this nation and then then them being expatriates as missionaries and then coming back to their nation. Yes, but for the most part, you know, it was like 80%, 90%, they're in the country already. Okay. They're serving locally, which by the way, this is going to be happening much, much more. This is going to be a, a big sea change in in the church. And that is people serving in their home countries more. That that started actually long ago. People staying in their home country. However, there are occasionally there are some there there was a time in where I live where um, it seemed like 70% of the calls were outside of their country. They would go to another country, usually an English speaking country, occasionally not. But um so anyway, I was we we would we would begin interacting with the RM or the the soon to be RM, finding out uh, basically BRT, right? <laughs> no, actually, was actually was very very genuine, very pleasant, very pleasant thing to do to call the missionary. You know, I didn't have to talk about their teaching pool. I didn't have to talk about the rules they were keeping, and I didn't, none of that. I was talking about real life with them. Okay, it's like so. You know, finding out what what level of education do they have so far? What are their plans? What are their hopes? And beginning to help them think about this reality that they're going to face in, say, three months. When they're going to finish their mission, what are they going to do? Because a lot of them finish their mission and they're like, I don't know what to do next. You know, sometimes they wait a year or two before they start school. They don't have the resources they need. They don't have the support they need. So our job was to begin figuring out uh, what support they're going to need. If they need support, do they have a plan? Help them formulate a plan for education or for a job, things like that. And so this was a very, very positive. My, my interactions were all very, very positive. Yeah. These all sound like great things. And that's from these conversations we've been having. There's nothing really nefarious about any of the work that you were doing. You're, you're helping people. What I, what I liked about it for me, what I liked about it was I could speak about reality. Mm. Okay. I could speak about the reality of the soon to be real life that they're going to be living rather than living under in this highly controlled environment and structure and reporting system where, you know, 
I mean, we all know what the missions are like. So uh, I could, you know, I could begin to help them see, look, you know, you're going to need some skills to make a job. I try to help them, you know, raise their, raise their expectations about what kind of career they could pursue. Um, you know, I, I made a note about this. I would like to, I, I could talk to them like a normal person without the dogma or pressure of a mission president. I didn't care if they were reading their scriptures every day, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I mean, I actually, I, I you know, honestly saying that's going to sound, that's going to sound very blasphemous for me to say that. Well, it's fine. <laughs> Frankly, everyone has, is multifaceted. Even a missionary that's, you know, a hundred percent of their time is trying to serve um, a religion that they believe in. Like, they're not 100% always thinking about religion. And I think anyone's fooling themselves if they, if they make a claim like that. Yeah. But I, you know, and, and I ran into a few cases and I'll relate this to a specific case. I ran into a few cases where the perpetual education fund would be perfect to help these individuals, but the policies did not permit it. Okay. The policies made it very difficult for them to access this resource. Um, this is the, the, the diversity or the, the, the variety of problems is so vast uh, in, in some of these environments that just having this policy that, you know, everything has to fit into this policy just would not, would not work. It wasn't effective. That's what was some of real frustrating I would assume that a recently returned missionary would be the ideal candidate for the perpetual education fund, especially a foreign missionary. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. I, I, I tried to help solve this case another way. Uh, and I think I did. I'm not sure. But let me give you an example. I was dealing with somebody who had already completed three years of an accounting degree in their home country. Okay. And they were going home and they they wanted to just go finish that last year of school, well, the Perpetual Education Fund does not fund four-year degrees. So because it was a four-year degree, automatically disqualified. Couldn't help them. Even though he only needed help with one yeah, year. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it would have been most likely less money than a two-year vocational school because he was only going for one year. Right, right. There's there's situations like this all the time. You'd said last episode the average was what six hundred seven hundred dollars. We're talking three hundred and fifty dollars tops for this guy to finish his degree. Yeah, I mean it's very minimal, very minimal. I mean it's shocking in some of these areas of the world how inexpensive education is. You know, I think I think I think it's a no brainer that the fund should always support uh, a four year degree if if that's what they want to do. I mean, there's, there's debates about the, the, the value of a four-year degree now, but, um, anyway, the, the place that my mind goes and, and maybe this is cynical, but this goes right into the sunk cost fallacy. You know, if the church starts funding everybody's four-year degree, that's a foreigner, of course, they're going to be so much more committed to the church because the church has helped them out significantly. One would assume, or do the numbers not reflect that? That's one of the, that's a, that's a real dilemma. That's a real dilemma. And I suspect the statistics don't show that that's one of the dilemmas. I think the, the, the church faces when, when, uh, people talk about loyalty, uh, if you're being, if, if you're asked to be loyal over being honest, 
that that that's a challenge. That's a challenge sometimes. Any, anyway, I'm not sure what to say, but the 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 RM playbook it was an it is an effort. I I believe that's that's what it's called still, but I believe they're doing a similar thing around the world now. It's basically because it's basically a way to help missionaries transition into their post-mission life. And, you know, we've all seen some of these just wild, you know, things that mission presidents sometimes say or contracts they write up. You need to do all these things <laughs> at the end of your mission. You know, the, the, some of the, 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 the dogmatic stuff. I mean, I've dealt with RMs who finish and literally they don't have, they don't have $50 to their name and they're, they got to figure out how to survive. Um, and getting the local leader to help them transition. They need money. They don't have any family support. They need money. You know, I, I heard, I, uh, this is, this will goes way back, but I, I found out that the mission president I had knowing this, uh, was thought outside the box. And he actually sent, in some cases, I understand he actually, you know, got a few hundred dollars cash and gave it to them as they finished their mission so they could go wow. figure out. He actually found a way to do that. Um, and I think that's actually very uh, honorable that he would help them do that. And uh, some of these challenges that people have are just so dramatically different from your your Sandy, Utah elder. You know, it's just very different. This was something that was eye-opening to me as a missionary myself. Here I was, 20 years old. One of my companions was not withdrawing any of the money that he was given monthly so for food <laughs> or otherwise. Right. And it took a week for me to, no to, to notice this. And I was young, I was naive, but I got frustrated with him because he wasn't, he wasn't contributing to the food at all. It was eye-opening for me because after talking to this, this individual, I got to know him better and I understood through our discussions, why he was doing that. And it was for exactly what you're saying. Like he was not going to have a dollar to his name when he ended his mission. Right. I learned a similar thing happened in, in my mission where, uh, you know, missionaries would, they'd send a little bit of money home that they got. And, you know, we just, it's, again, these are cultural things, um, that, um, speak to much deeper, concerns people have then uh you know how many people did i teach this week or whatever but sorry to derail <laughs> that's okay Th this actually all all relates to a, a topic i want to mention i put what attracts young people to the lds church all over the world now i am in, in the previous episode i mentioned a small country where like 90 percent of the members are ysa i mean there's about a thousand members Literally ninety percent of them are YSA. Hmm. I, uh, I guarantee that one thing that attracts them to the church is uh, it's potentially uh, a way out of their country. They would prefer to leave their country and go start a life somewhere else because there's more economic opportunity. Um, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, but it 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 doesn't it doesn't necessarily boost the church's uh statistics you know if 70 60 70 percent of missionaries finish and they leave the you know they're gone uh there's you know the number's still there but it doesn't you know that that's the reality that i'm 
willing to face. Um, and uh, again, the young American like myself was many years ago. That those are those are things young people at the time, maybe not so much now. They they love to associate that with have an American friend go talk English. Those are ways to attract people in. You know, but again, it's taboo to say that. It's sort of, uh, but it's undeniable. In this particular area, literally all of the missionaries who were called over, we'll say 10-year period, they were all sent outside of their home country, usually to the U.S., the U.K., Australia, occasionally somewhere else. Okay, any uh, Somebody who thinks, oh, I could go live in the U.K. for two years, that's a huge attraction for them. To, to join the church. And, and so my, my point is that, you know, we like to think they're, they're joining for all the right reasons, but there's no question. One of the reasons is, is, uh, an opportunity to, to leave. You know, I know of some cases where I, I know of very specific, where they, they got, they got stuck, COVID hit, they got stuck overseas and they were glad that they didn't have to go home. <laughs> You're developing this RM playbook. One of the questions that I that I have with regards to this is, did you notice or did you have any sort of statistics on whether the retention rates of return missionaries were different for foreigners than they were for um, U.S. return missionaries? Because you guys clearly had noticed a problem or, or the church had noticed that there was a retention problem with return missionaries. I guess the, the point I'm trying to get at is why your part of the world to develop this program? That's a good question. And honestly, uh, let me put it this way. The people that need to know definitely know what the statistics are about uh, activity and who's active and who's not. They know. In fact, I don't, I've never heard this said anywhere on any podcast. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this now, because it might be, it might trigger some other interesting discussions. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. The, the, they, they, the, the, there's a lot of statistics kept about all kinds of things. Let me, uh, let me just give you one example. I was also involved in implementing a Bishop's storehouse like program, which was called the Bishop's ordering system. Is that what it was called? Which uh, in our, you know, in this part, this part of the world, it was much easier for people to go order stuff online and have it delivered or have it picked up than to, you know, there's no, there's no bishop storehouse per se. I can say that every, that the, the financial, the people paying the bills for all this stuff would know exactly what members are getting and how much. And like, they would even know, like this, this ward here has 50 active adult families and 40 of them are getting assistance from the church. They know exactly all of that is very clearly illustrated. So they will certainly know. I mean, I saw, I saw a statistic recently that showed how many return missionaries had temple rec- active temple recommends three months or four months after their mission. Now, why is it four months? Because now missionaries at the end of their mission are only given a three month temple recommend. Oh, interesting. They're not given the two year it used to be a year, and I don't know. I don't know if it was. I don't know if they were given a two year, but they only are given a temple recommend for three months. I assume by their mission president. I'm almost positive. Okay. Well, at month is the impetus for this to gauge their activity level three months later. 
I'm almost positive because the statistic I show it so is you know, like 57% or something don't have a temple recommend after four months. Is that specific to your your geography or is that worldwide? No, no, that was that was my geography. But I I I'm I, I strongly believe that the activity rates are very similar all around the world. All very, very similar. Maybe you take take the take the developing world, I think it's all very similar. This is something that uh, you know, we talk about activity rates. You, you've maybe been hearing about what the activity rates are in Chile or the Philippines or whatever. And, you know, we know, we know that it's like, it. I, I think an optimistic view is like 20 to 25% is very optimistic. Yeah. So um, back to your question yeah the statistics there is they there there are mechanisms in place to, yes to keep track now okay this is what i was getting to about data okay i i early on in my deconstruction we'll call it <laughs> i realized that the financial people in salt lake could very easily they could very maybe I'm giving them an idea, but I'm sure they're doing this. I'm, I'm, there's no way they're not doing this. They could very easily um, see where people are stop paying tithing. Who 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 is, who is stopped paying tithing and where? Okay, they can very easily see what's happening to people's belief or commitment. We'll, we'll call it that. Their commitment based on based on tithing okay because they keep track if there's anything they keep track of very very closely it's the money the tithing donations are very well documented within the church yeah yeah it's a very clear indicator uh of sort of commit of commitment you might say and so let's just say they look at you know this region and they say wow tithing's way down you know who stopped paying tithing they could very quickly see I'll bet you these 10 families are, you know, they're, they're, they're having problems. They've stopped paying tithing. Whereas, you know, for previous five years, they had tithing paid every month or, you know, 80% of the time. They could very easily see that. Uh, and I suspect that's absolutely what they've, what they've done. They can see very clearly what's happening around the world. Yeah. Yeah, to a similar point, they would have access to what percentage of return missionaries become active tithe payers once they finish their mission. Yes, and of course, again, temple recommend is another significant indicator, right? Main keeping your temple recommend current and all that. You've probably already answered this because we've been discussing about it, but the position that you held, you had access to privileged information about membership statistics, attendance records, or what sort of information did you have access to? I had a little bit. I was occasionally exposed to maybe aggregated data about this kind of stuff. While you were in these meetings that that you were mentioning. Yes. Yeah. But, a lot, you know, a lot of times, I mean, uh, a lot of times, I mean, I, I saw some data recently shared by a high level authority. Again, it was it was it was summarized data, which shows activity levels from primary down to adults. And it shows this very common thing, you know, where activity rates, once they become over you know from once they become YSA activity rates are like between 20 and 30% and that includes return missionaries you know so um but okay but as far as the results of my uh, of the, the this work with return missionaries um i did not persist 
with this work uh, long enough maybe to 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 see the measurement but te- technically this position would be monitoring this kind of stuff for about a year after they finish their mission meaning they're they're maintaining some contact with them offering support again it's very much like a career counselor checking in with them you know we're trying to build uh you know build them up and help them have a bright future which is all very good and noble but but sometimes what what frustrated me sometimes was was uh the expectation, like we would project, we expect you to be like this as a good member when maybe they're, maybe the best healthy life for them was, was not doing these type of things or being, being less, you know, it's just this, it's just sort of this idea that to be happy, to be healthy, you have to do all these things when, you know, everyone's a different person. Everyone has a different challenge. Everyone has different circumstances. There's no one size fits all. And, and that's one of the challenges I think in sort of the culture of the church is there's, there's gotta be an adjustment to allow for more diversity, more. Yeah. I don't know if that's right. We're more diversity. Everyone doesn't have to have the same outcome, you know? (laughs) So you were, you were managing this RM playbook program. You left employment partway through like implementation of it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There was some things that I needed to pursue. And so I moved on. And so I I think they're doing a similar type of thing. I think they're implementing it worldwide. I'd have to double check, but yeah, there's, again, they're going to use a lot, utilize uh, volunteers uh, for, for some of this in some parts of the world, they'll use volunteers to do it. We'll stick on this volunteer idea. Were you personally calling all of these missionaries, or did you have volunteers from a local area um, helping you out? No, no, I, I was calling them. I, I actually, actually, I take that back. I was, I was, I had, I had six or so mandated contacts points over time, but we also were developing what we called a mentors. We were trying to develop a network of people in the church, in the area who we could refer them to, to get more advice about a certain career path. Uh, and, you know, it was contacting them and help explaining to them what we're trying to do. Basically, we're trying to create, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if LinkedIn's the right term, but um, we're just trying to create a, a network of resources for them. So when they, as they finish their mission, they could get on, a path to stability, a path to success, a path to uh, achieve their goals, which could be, you know, uh, somebody who lives lives away from the big city may have a very different, very different outlook than somebody who lives in a big city. I mean, you're you're developing this program. I'm assuming from the way you described it, it's it's a like a pilot program with um, eventual implementation worldwide. Uh huh. It was at least well. It was then implemented area wide, and it was sort of piloted in a couple of countries. And then it's like, yeah, we like this. We like how this is going. This is good. Let's let's do this area wide. So then it's training and getting uh, all the other countries sort of up to speed on how to how to do this thing. And then I suspect that they would take these concepts uh, and the approach, maybe the tools. There was some there was some software tools developed uh, and implementing this. Um, in other, I don't know if they probably do phase it. I don't know if they, 
phase it, phase it out in, or phase it in in various, depending on the need. It seems like a clear overlap. And I know this calling doesn't exist in every ward, but there's usually like self-reliance specialist in the ward. Supposed to be. Supposed to be. <laughs> it seems that there would be a clear overlap with that calling and this work that you're trying to do. Okay. This speaks to another real challenge in the developing world and in a volunteer organization where uh, on paper it looks good, but in reality it's much different. Um, Getting these people in place and working effectively is extremely difficult, Uh, especially in areas where, you know, you may not have uh, professionals available or somebody who has these skills. You know, the, a lot of times the bishop calls whoever's available, you know. Oh, you know, I, I remember, uh, I'll share this, I'll share this experience. I remember going to train a self-reliant specialist and newly called. And uh, I get up there to find out that, you know, this person is in more need than most. I mean, they they don't even have a job, you know, and they're supposed to be advising and helping other people become self-reliant. You know, it's just things like this, just like, you know, really, really difficult. So, you know, you just try to boil things down like, okay, where can I be effective? What can I do? You do the best you can. And, you know, but a lot of these realities, um, I made lots of attempts to communicate them, but you know the the, the people at the higher pay grade they got they got uh, more important things to deal with, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> so, as you had said, you had made a comment in the previous episode that um, the volunteer work to implement a lot of these programs that we have been discussing is very hit or miss, mostly miss. Very hit or miss. While everything that we have been discussing sounds great on paper, actual implementation doesn't follow through with what you want. Maybe this would be in the, my on my on my next top ten list. the The church is is masterful at presentation. Okay, uh, powerpoints, video, all it's all you know it's all super looks super professional and all that, and 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 it is. But right behind all of that shiny uh, stuff is a, I'll call it a world of, of chaos. Um, things are much less orderly than I expected them to be. Again, that was sort of the, this, you know, I was like this peek behind the curtain. When I, when I saw what was really happening, I realized that um, this, is, this is just like any other organization dealing with real problems that often they can't speak openly about and lots of chaos more than I expected. Um, that was kind of the wake up. That was part of the wake up call, uh, for me. And it's not that I, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to opine too much um, through these interviews, but I will say this. One of the things that has been the most eye opening for me is there's this perspective, there's this perspective that the the church as a whole is this divine, divinely run organization. But when you look at how it actually operates on the worldwide scale, I'm not, I'm not referring to local scale. I'm saying the worldwide organization. It is run exactly like any other business around the world. 
That doesn't have to mean that there isn't truth or goodness to be found within the organization, but it is very different than it presents itself to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's there's no question. Sort of the best practices, the business, the business, business strategies, business. What would you call it? Business philosophies are they're absolutely um, permeated. I mean, it's it's a key. Now, I, I mentioned this in some of our preliminary discussions. Remember, I mentioned the uh, leadership enrichment series, and I was hoping that you would bring it up. Yeah, <laughs> this was uh, early on. Early on, when I learned that there's this online resource called the Leadership Enrichment Series, online for me, but people who work in headquarters, they actually go to an auditorium and sit in. So the HR, I think it was led by the HR department, they would bring in you know, high-level leaders of the church to talk about various uh, operational issues in the church or, or stuff related to the leadership pattern. How can I be more like the savior? How can I be a better listener? Stuff like that. And they bring in, you know, and they sit them down. They have like this round table. It's like an hour long thing, sometimes longer. And, and, you know, and they would do this with, they'd bring in apostles too, and they'd sit down and they'd have these, these sort of discussions, sort of like a forum discussion. Then they have offer people, but it very much felt like they were turning these, the apostles into management consultants. I mean, it was very, uh, it, it was just like, wow. I mean, you know, how often were these held? Well, I think I'm not sure they're still doing them, but I want to say they were, I want to say they had between three and three, three or four a year. Well, it's maybe every quarter. And and they would bring a general authority every single time or just occasionally. Uh, yeah, almost always. Almost always. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they're recorded and they were uploaded and anybody could go look. You could go look at past episodes and so forth. On the internal website, not public. Yeah, yeah, on the intranet of the, that's yeah, right. Intranet, not internet. And it's called the Leadership Enrichment Series, and if you want to go, you know, so you'd hear them talk. You'd you'd hear, you know, an apostle or a seventy talk about some, you know, business concept, and they'd relate it to scriptures and the gospel and things like that. And and yeah, but it it it, it was. You know, it was odd when I when I first saw that. I'm like, these are these spiritual leaders, and they're sitting down and they're talking about, you know, o- Oaks uh, Elder Oaks. He got up one time. He didn't do a traditional Q and A, and I that's probably by design. He gave a speech basically. Would they do Q and As on these or not? Oh yeah, yeah, they would do Q and As at the end. They would always do a Q. Yeah, they do a Q and A for maybe thirty minutes or so, and and answer a few questions. But it, you know, it was all about trying to help. The, the the church employees, you know, glean wisdom and experience from the general authorities. These are the most entrenched members. So the questions being posed are probably not the hard questions. These are directed towards like everyday application of their positions. You mean the discussion? What do they talk about? You have these leadership enrichments and you'd have a general authority or an apostle there, and they'd do a question and answer at the end. The The demographic of those in attendance are the most entrenched members, the most active believing members. Yeah. But again, it's, again, they're primarily talking about, they're primarily talking about uh, how to be a better employee, how to, how to operate more effectively. And they would, you know, try to apply, you know, spiritual and scriptural things to it. And, and, 
Yeah. The question I was unsuccessfully asking <laughs> was um, what sorts of questions were posed. I'm, I'm assuming they were not any sort of doctrinal or heavy questions. These were all pertaining to the jobs and functions of these individuals. They were not. It was not about doctrine. Uh, it was it was about oh, how can I be a better listener? How can I help my employee be more motivated? How can I you know, find the proper work and work balance, things like that. Um, you know, Elder Oaks, he talked about silos. He talked about, he got up and talked about uh, how there needs to be more communication between departments. You know, it was just interesting to me to see how they would put an ecclesiastical leader uh, in, a, in, a, in a situation where they're dealing with... Uh, Management, basically management consulting, <laughs> which makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> so were these trainings for the operational side of the church or the ecclesiastical side of the church? Operational side, just the operational side. Yeah. None of those in attendance were like your mission presidents or your stake presidents. These were all different audience. Yeah. Gotcha. I just wanted to make sure uh, I understood who, who the target audience for these, um, these trainings were. It's the, it's the workforce, basically for the work church workforce it's called. Yeah. Well, that's such a fascinating juxtaposition. I mean, you get the, you get this, you get this person who is supposed to represent Christ discussing business ethics and best practices. I could imagine that being very jarring to a believer. It just really changed the dynamic, changed the perception. Now, let me let me share with you one thing here. I'm going to pull it up. Okay, I've got it right here. This is called the leadership pattern. This is one of the core. This is this is like this is like the culture of LDS employment. Okay, and I'll send you this image. Uh, this isn't confidential. This is just, again. This is you know this has been developed for the church workforce culture. Uh, it's, a, it's a circle. And in the middle, it says lead like the savior. Okay. They want everyone to always think if I'm going to be a leader, how would the savior lead? Okay. Lead like the savior. Then it's got act under the direction of the spirit. Okay. Of course, that's, that's pure LDS uh, concept. Act under the direction of the spirit. Then there's on the bottom of that it's called align with the brethren, you know, so you can't really act under the spirit and not be aligned with the brethren, you know, that those things have to be in in harmony. You, you you see the challenge there. So then there's these six core, uh, what they call t- um, operational talents. That they call operational talents. There's six of them. Define directions. Like you know what what's the direction we're going? Uh, counseling together. Okay, that's about getting getting consensus. Build capability. How do we increase our capabilities over time? Organizing the work accomplishing the work and rendering an account. That's the return and report type of thing. Now, uh, I think it's also very useful to discuss uh, this concept of councils. This was a big change that happened in the church. I want to say 2014, maybe 2012. There was a real shift to councils, to the council model. Okay. And now there's a, you know, it's a buzzword council together council you know have a there's there's the high council there's the ward council there's a self-reliance council there's all these things about counseling and and so there was this real push and shift to to uh managing by councils or consensus making sure everybody gets in and even this has been a big topic 
for the quorum of the 12 now. It's like, well, how do they, how do they get revelation? Well, they all have to agree for it to be considered doctrine. It has to be consensus for it to. Yeah. Which is very different from what uh, it used to be. Okay. And anyway, so this is, uh, this is, this is one of the core things in the cultural development and sort of operational uh, mindset of the workforce is this, what they call the leadership pattern. Um, I'll send you a copy of it. It's, it's interesting because it does drive, it does drive the, uh, the perspective or the view about how they want to operate. It's perplexing because you have, you have these ecclesiastical leaders who for the church employees are supposed to be both ecclesiastical leader and business consultant. It's it's just such a blurry line on on what their role actually is. Yeah, let me let me let me give you uh, let me give you some insight. Uh, I, I don't know this for sure. Maybe someday an, an area level will speak openly about it. But area presidencies, I believe, significantly deal with uh, they deal with financial, uh, legal. And some the the their the their ecclesiastical role, from my view, is to simply train stake presidents to to run in their area. They, it's you know they they deal with the stake presidents or or the area seventies. Okay, but I I guarantee you they're looking at regularly daily. They're looking at financial uh, matters, approving budgets, signing off on can we do this? You know, humanitarian whatever. It's, it's they manage. They manage the money. They are making executive decisions about finance, money things. And then uh, what, what else did I say? Oh, legal matters. You know, there's a legal counsel in every area. And they, uh, this, you know, I mentioned this in some of our preliminary discussions that legal review was code for nothing will happen for another year. <laughs> you know, I saw that over and over again. Oh, this has got to go to legal review first. Okay, well, we can't even talk about it now for six months to a year, nothing would happen for until some, you know, legal thing would. And there is a very, uh, lots of care taken on, on legal matters. I think, you know, I don't know if you want to call that, that's what do they call office of risk management? You know, I, I don't know exactly, but there's a extreme caution taken on legal matters. As we know, there's a lot of legal uh, issues the, the church deals with. The LDS church is massive. To a certain extent, we have to expect this sort of these sort of roles within church leadership just because of the sheer size of the, the, of the institution. It's just interesting that, that these roles are reserved for ecclesiastical people. Well, this probably, this probably relates to maintaining uh, the right level of, of control that the ecclesiastical um, the ecclesiastical authorities um, need to have a, have the power to uh, rein in or can, or you know properly ad- administer the temporal side. Uh, you know, to keep things within their purview, maybe. Um, whereas if there was really a, a much, a, if there was a bigger separation, there'd be more risk, probably a lot more risk. Of course. Yeah. Anyway, that, those are, those are, uh, those are pretty high level, maybe philosophical, uh, discussions. 
it's hard for me not not to let my brain go into that direction. So I try and reel it in as much as I can. When you're trying to save the world, it gets complicated, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> let me cover po- the positive experiences. I can go right down the list. You know, meet, meeting with real people, dealing with real life, uh, dealing with people who really needed help. That was a very rewarding part of the job. No question. Okay. Um, I, I wasn't sitting behind a desk uh, a lot of the time, which was, which is what I liked being out there, seeing what real people are dealing with. Okay. Um, and that's where I think, uh, there's opportunity for the, the culture of the church to improve. We'll say to be more, to, to recognize the diversity of individual experience and to be much less, uh, have change our expectations, you might say. Um, you know, if people need to people need to sell coffee on Sunday to make a living. Yeah, that's okay. You know, it's not a sin. It's not. You know, I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? You know, people dealing with real, with real. You know, rather than feeling pressure, like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that because I'm, you know, I'm 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 breaking the Sabbath or breaking rules or whatever. It just creates, I think, a lot of unnecessary burden on people. So um, providing resources, ideas, and validation or motivation to help, you know, know, avoiding dogma, you know, that was a great part of my job is I didn't, I didn't have to get in the thick of dogma at all. You weren't part of this ecclesiastical side. You were there helping with their wealth, welfare. Right, right. Yeah, recognizing that challenges people face were not necessarily related to faithfulness or sin or disobedience or lack of paying tithing. You know, there were so many things that are beyond their control, helping people see that, that, you know, uh, help them making help, help them make maybe a more appropriate choice or decision in their life. Okay. I, I enjoyed that part of it. Uh, you know, I just write a dealing with reality, not pie in the sky, no box, you know, box checking. There's so much box checking, you know, the ideas of the prosperity gospel, you know, this, this came up, uh, this came up in various discussions that, you know, I think in, in the Western United States, kind of the traditional Mormon successful person, uh, you know, is this middle upper class person who has, the white picket fence and two car garage, you know, you know what I mean? This concept, you know, there are many places in the world where a guy running his little farm, making a hundred bucks a month or whatever it is, he's perfectly happy, you know, and to let them, let them be happy in that state without expectations that, Oh, we want them to make more money. So they have more free time or whatever it may be to, you know, it's just redefining what success looks like for the individual. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's uh, a significant opportunity for cultural change. I could clearly see how systems and policies often did not meet needs or deal with reality. Okay. Uh, This is the concept uh, where I, I think many, many more decisions need to be made at the local level rather than from Salt Lake. Um, There were far too many things determined or decided in Salt Lake than than should have been. And that, that was, you know, so I could see that it's like, look, you know, let the local people make solve their own problem. And, and the way they solve the problem may be very different from how we think it should be solved, but we need to allow for that. 
will allow for culture to influence the solution to a problem because it's going to look different in different parts of the world. Right. Exactly. Now, you know, the, the church will tout, oh, we're, we're very culturally sensitive, all that. No. <laughs> I mean, this is an American Western. I mean, come on. Running around the country in white shirts and ties. I mean, it, it, culturally, that that is is absurd in many places of the world. <laughs> okay. And they're making some adjustments to that, but it might be 30 or 40 years too late. <laughs> well, in the places that it's accepted now, it wasn't there before Christianity came. Right. Right. Uh, there just needs to be a much wider uh, space of, of uh, what's, I don't know, what's appropriate or what we, it just needs to be much broader. Um, and then the last one I put, you know, valuing, uh, valuing the impact of one person. The one person can uh, really impact somebody. Um, and, uh, you know, the church does promote this idea going after the one. Um, you know, one person can really have a profound effect uh, on somebody. Um, but a lot of times we're expected to deal with not just one, but 10 or 20. And that's very, very challenging. Um, but so seeing the value of one, uh, that one person can make, well, I should say the, not the value, but the, the impact one person can have on another person for, for good. And oftentimes removed from dogma. Okay. Without, without the dogma, just peel it away and help people love them for who they are, not necessarily for you, you, for what you want them to be. That, that's, you know, that may be, that may sound blasphemous, but uh, I think that's much more real and much more impactful uh, than sometimes how we make it out. I mentioned, you know, super, you know, avoiding supernatural or avoiding magical thinking. Uh, I mean, we live in a time now where we have so much information and uh, information data at our fingertips to make better choices or make better decisions and giving people the power and honestly, the, the conviction or the bravery to uh, make those choices rather than being simply told what to do. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts. <laughs> I want to touch back on one of the things you mentioned. Um, I could tell you were getting emotional as you're discussing the the impact that one person can have on another human's life. And I'm reflecting on the impact that I had in people's lives as a missionary. And I don't know that I am brought to tears when I think about the people that I converted, even as an active believing member. But so it was interesting to see that you coming from not the ecclesiastical side, you're coming from the operational side of the church, but you're actually having real impact on the daily lives of these individuals. And I think there's a fascinating juxtaposition there where the ecclesiastical side doesn't have as long lasting of an effect as someone coming in and helping a person and helping them thrive. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to tie, if you want to tie this to some life-changing uh, practices, you might say. People in developing countries are often saddled with debt, and they're just barely surviving day to day, week to week. Okay, they often make they often make some uh, not so good financial 
they've developed some not so good financial habits. Okay. One of the habits that the church does teach through this curriculum, which can be life changing, is to keep track of your spending, you know, track where you spend. That simple thing can really help people see more clearly, see reality. Now, you know, the church often does this as a way to help them budget so they can contribute uh, tithing or a fast offering or something like that. But, um, you know, I would take it, I would take it a step further and um, say that, you know, if they could see when they see more clearly, they can make better financial decisions, which may, um, it may allow them to make a more reasonable uh, financial choice related to the church. Okay. And cause, cause let me just tell you when somebody, somebody who makes $200 a month, that 20 bucks tithing, that, that, that means a lot. Okay. It means a lot. And that, that is not a joke by any, that is not, that is not a, uh, that is not an exaggeration. I dealt with a stake in a district in particular. I know I was told very clearly the average income, uh, was about, uh, it was about $200 a month. <clears throat> and these, these people could be self-reliant if they made 500 a month. So like, how can we get them to make 500? They could be self-reliant. But so that, you know, that, that little bit of money, you know, I guess all I'm saying is I wanted to empower people to, through, through some simple habits, uh, especially related to finance to help them make the best choice for themselves in the real world because I hear it all the time. I've heard it all the time. You know, they, they sometimes would have very difficult time getting help that they needed, uh, because of a bureaucracy, because of, you know, leadership roulette, Bishop roulette, whatever you want to call it. And that, that to me, that's sad when a lot of times they have the power within themselves to, uh, to make those choices rather than being, being dictated to, uh, so uh, I know it's a fine, I know it's a challenging issue, but I think anytime somebody is able to make their own choice based on the best information they have, a uh, reasonable decision, it will be better than simply being told what to do by somebody else because of some magical thinking. Well, that's, that's awesome. It's, uh, it's clear just from our discussion that you, you have been moved and you have impacted individual people's lives. And, and I, I think that's amazing. That's awesome. Well, th- thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, there was, there was, uh, a lot, a lot of positive things, um, about it. I mean, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I would still do this kind of work if I wasn't tied down by the bureaucracy and the, the, um, the systems which made it, um, made it very difficult. Uh, there's a lot of good. I mean, there, if we do talk in the future, there's, uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, in the church who decide to help outside, meaning to, they, they, they want to help people outside of the normal church channels, which is, which is good. Um, but it's, there are, there's always, there's always going to be challenges. These problems will, they'll be with us forever. I'm going to ask a question and you don't have to answer it. I know you're trying to maintain some anonymity, <laughs> but my listeners, I know they're going to be curious as you're working for the church. How did your religious deconstruction come about and what's your current relationship with the church? Again, answer as much or as little as you'd like there. 
Yeah. Um, I'll say this, that um, there were oh, over many years, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't just happen while working for the church, but there were, there were things that happened that caused me to pause and think about, you know, what's really going on as I, I served in various leadership positions as you begin to see how certain things happen in the church. Um, you begin the, 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 the mysticism, the, the mystery of it begins to dissipate. You begin to see patterns. As I went to work for the church and I increasingly saw behind the curtain how, how the sausage is made, so to speak, I realized that if I was going to make sense of certain things in my life, that I had to expand my, uh, I had to, I had to expand my, um, my resources, you might say. I had to, I had to find uh, a new understanding. Okay, it's a shift towards spiritual independence. Is that what you're? It, well, yes, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, rather than, I mean, there there was some things that happened. I realized, you know what? I can simply, I, I can't rely on these systems and this paradigm to answer these, to to solve or to address these challenges that I'm dealing with. You know, as soon as I did that, a whole new world of understanding opened up to me. Okay. It was scary. It was, uh, mind blowing, you know? Um, and in some ways I'm still, uh, in that space, but, um, a lot of it I've, you know, I've come to see things very differently. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be too explicit, but as much or as little as you feel comfortable saying. Yeah, I would just say, I would just say, <laughs> I would say it this way that uh, the human experience is extremely vast. Uh, the the human species, you know, I mean, we're what approaching eight billion people now. Our little, our little tiny world and experience. We don't really realize how little and tiny it is until you, until you sort of pop the bubble, you might say, and, and realize that, I mean, I mean, I've got some strong statements about, I mean, we we're virtually, we're virtually unknown. There, there's a lot of joy and happiness that can be experienced um, by fully embracing uh, the human condition. I'll, I'll, put it that way, rather than this constant drive to be perfect or constant, you know, just the, it's exhausting. And so I had to, I had to, for lack of a better term, take a break from, from all that and, uh, find a new understanding for my, for my existence and my experience and work on a, a, a different path forward, which, you know, I'm, I'm still, uh, developing that, but, you know, having this conversation helps me make that, uh, journey. We'll put it for, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Feel free to disagree with me, but the way I look at my spiritual journey after leaving the church is I don't ever want it to end. I want to continually be learning and developing the way I see the world 
and the empathy that I have for fellow human beings. Like if, if I stop, if I, if I come to a point where I say I have it all, then I've missed the point. Right. No, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I've, I've, I've wondered if this would, if I had not gone to work for the church, if this had ever happened, um, I'm, I'm not sure that I, uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, you know, it did, it did, did, it, it definitely gave me a new perspective and opened up a door to a new reality, which is, as I, I mentioned this a lot in, in these discussions about dealing with reality, I think, uh, I think that's, well, you know, of course, there's, there's the philosophical discussion about what is reality, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but... Uh, you know, to, to, to bring it back to maybe to, to closer to this discussion, um, I realize that uh, members of the church all around the world, they're as human as anybody else. Okay. And in fact, in fact, I would, I would have to say this was a, this was a key, uh, a key turning point for me. Because uh, I have, I have some writings about this, but I, you know, I used to have this really, strong belief that I was, I was, I was special. I was unique. You know, I was in this little niche of a community and, and, you know, you, because the, you know, the church doctrine, yeah, the church doctrine really sets you up as you're this really special. And then as soon as I realized that part of this is by going out and seeing people around the world that no, no, I'm just one of a billion of one of the, one of billions of people and I'm not, I'm not, there's nothing really special about, about me. And then when you realize that you realize, well, maybe, maybe all this other stuff is, you know, it's just, it's all just a construct and it really, it really opens you up to, I think, uh, a new understanding of what it means to be human. Yeah. That's definitely something that I've grappled with after deconstructing is this concept that none of us are important. Like none of us are like that chosen generation. We're just the current apex species on this planet. I mean, I, I've, I've mentioned this to a few people. Um, I mean, I say this occasionally that, I mean, literally in a hundred years, there may be nobody who even ever thinks anything about who I was or what I did a hundred years from now. I mean, think about, do we think about our ancestor a little bit? You know, we may know a little bit about their story from 150 years ago, but for the most part, they're forgotten. And, and, um, it's not that that's good. Well, and even when we mention them, they're snapshots of who they were as an individual. They, they aren't, it doesn't encompass them as a whole person. It's, you know, my great grandfather served in world war one and I have a photo of him with this big old cigar. And that's the only image I have of him. That's it. Doesn't tell me who he was. Doesn't tell me anything about him. You can appreciate that, you of course. Yeah. Still, you can, you can, but it's, it's, uh, it, but the exact same thing's going to happen to us. I mean, in a hundred, two hundred years from now, you know. And so that, to me, it, that brings into sharp focus there are our, our reality, and that uh, we try to do the best we can now, re- reduce suffering, help you know, m- minimize suffering uh, in the world. And, uh, I think that's all we can really do. (laughs) That's all I'll say. Thank you so much for giving me your time for sharing your experience with my audience, just being the person that you are, the individual that would, that would talk openly about sensitive subjects like this. And 
Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity um, to speak, and it, it is a little bit. It can be scary. Yeah, it's a little bit scary sometimes, but I, but the more I'm willing to be open and sincere. Again, I, I like to say that everything I did uh, in my work was uh, was done sincerely and uh, you know out of love for people to try to help people. Um, I, I never wanted to appear to have ever have any kind of ulterior motives, which is probably what um, which facilitated my departure or, or development to other things. We'll say. Are there any final remarks, any, any last comments that you'd want to make before we wrap this up? I, I, the only thing I would say is that, you know, the, the, the Mormon story, so to speak, the, you know, this, you know, this Western, this phenomenon in the Western United States that we are so familiar with, there's a whole other element, uh, untold stories out there uh, in the non-Western world, I would say. Because you know, people in Australia and in the UK and New Zealand, so where they 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 relate more closely to the culture of the American church. But there's a whole there's a whole vast group of experiences in uh, called the the developing world of the the non Western uh, the non Western experience in Mormonism, which I think have largely been untold. And I think that's a very rich I think it's a very it's a it's an opportunity for some really rich and interesting storytelling. I don't know if that's the right word, storytelling, but experience sharing experiences. That uh, maybe that'll be this maybe maybe that'll be phase two of the blogger knuckle. <laughs> no, I think that would be fascinating. These technologies are bridging all these barriers now, right? Language, space, culture. You know, it there's really. All that's being bridged. Yeah. We're having this conversation halfway across the world from each other. Right. That's all I would say. You know, there, there's uh, there's some really tremendous individuals out there uh, who've had various experiences who, who are, they're, they're unknown. You know, they're virtually unknown. Um, and maybe their stories will be told someday. Maybe we'll you know, be facilitating that. And, uh, but anyway, that, that's an element of all of this that I think is largely untold. Thank you so much, Nolan, for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Um, if there's ever something else you want to chat about, feel free to reach out anytime. I know the listeners are going to love this episode. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. So that concluded the two part conversation that I had with Nolan. Another huge thank you for, uh, to Nolan for giving me his time to discuss these subjects. It has been fascinating to get a glimpse into the inner workings of the church that aren't as focused on the ecclesiastical side of things. If this is content that you enjoy, please uh, consider becoming a monthly donor to the podcast by visiting ramiumptumruminations.org and clicking the donate button on the side. Wherever you find yourself out there today, heading off to meet up with some friends for some enjoyable libations, I hope that you have an excellent day.